Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. It's Halloween's this weekend, and, and since I've lived in Burbank for the last 15 years, I have not had one trick-or-treater, okay? And I used to go out and buy candy because you feel bad if someone comes. You don't want to you know, turn your light off and ignore them. But now I'm to a point where I don't buy candy anymore, and I'm sort of bummed because what if someone comes and I, I can't give them candy? I mean, I grew up back east, and we would just go out in the neighborhood all night I mean, and just go to house to house and make a cleanup. And I live in an apartment complex where there's a lot of apartments. You think it's a kid, you would go out and do that. But I don't know. So go out there and trick or treat. And if you live in Burbank, I'm not going to say my address, but just walk around Burbank and try to trick or treat. So anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, actually my, my guest, Chris Wise, is from, uh, you're from New York originally. Yes, I am, Steve. Yes. Thank and, you. Now, did you trick or treat a lot? As a kid, we did, you know, but once you heard about all the bad things people were doing, uh, I, I, if I was a parent right now, which I don't think I am. Uh, <laughs> I would have no. I would have home parties and gatherings for well, the kids because it's just getting a little. I don't know. Just we've heard too much, but you know that's that's the way it is today. True. And then our other guest is uh, Jason Achilles Mazillus. So and you're you guys were in the band Al. We're gonna talk about your career. And we're gonna talk about Al. Jason and, uh, plays guitar and Al and uh, hello hello. Vocals. Now now where are you from, Jason? Uh, I grew up for the most part in. Well, I was born in Chicago. Um, I spent most of my Life in San Jose, California. And how'd you get the nickname Achilles? Uh, it's my middle name. I everybody thinks I made it up, but that's he's Greek. <laughs> it's he's a, Greek. What do you yeah. want, right? <laughs> Chicago Greek immigrant uh, father, and there you go. Totally now, Greek. Now, now you're you're you play the bass. Now, when you were a kid, you started playing bass, right? Because you came from an Irish background. Were you playing the bass, the Celtic music when you were younger? Is that, is that no? But I would say because of uh, my my mom and dad are Irish, born in Ireland. I'm first generation. New York, American born, and so I, I think that kind of their flavor of American music too, everything from like Sinatra to Neil Diamond and so on. Um, I remember hearing "Light My Fire" on the radio, and that that was definitely something we all gravitated towards. So it's funny; it was the whole kind of influence of it overall, being an Irish American. You know. So now, did, how did you choose the bass? Because when you're young, there's so many instruments you can choose. Well. At the time, everyone was playing guitar and drums, and I thought I wanted to be a drummer, and I already sang quite a bit and was already singing in choir. So I knew I had a voice um, and a sense of pitch, but it was really Iron Maiden, uh, you know, and, and Steve Harris in particular, the way he plays bass. And in fact, tomorrow I'm playing with a couple of the Iron Maiden girls. Tomorrow, Courtney Cox and the singer and uh, Morbid Angel's drummer, and we're doing Phantom of the Opera for the Halloween uh, jam night. And okay. To just get up on stage and do something like Phantom of the Opera, first of all, you have to really know Steve Harris, and second of all, you got to have chops, and you got to have endurance, and that was one of the first things I really was attracted to, was like this sort of sportsman's like Michael Jordan on the base of heavy metal, you know, and um, so therein lies the whole story, really, but then it led to upright bass, uh, playing with the bow, and really becoming a real, a real full, you know, Full bass man style, you know. So how do you sit there tricks. as when you're playing the bass? How do you decide you want to make the transition? Because the upright, and I mean, because it's so cool. Because you don't see a lot of upright bass players. You don't. I mean, when you look around, but I mean, it's it's a big change, and also because it's a big instrument. I mean, how do you sit there as you know? Well, what age did you start switching to that? Well, uh, I I had college in front of me, and I already had you know like. 35 students a week and I had a band and I was very we were playing in front of like a thousand people upstate New York Saratoga winters which burnt down up in the Saratoga area which is where I met Dan in my high school years um in Saratoga New York and I was born in Queens so that's really where the music flourished and I heard Iron Maiden and I grew up with Kiss which is another ironic kind of part of my story uh being Ace Frehley's bass player now so um this whole thing with Owl was all born of these early origins that we're talking about right now. And this is our third release called Things You Can't See, which we have here in the studio. And uh, Jason is uh, has been with Owl, Dan, and I now for, I think it's something like... Yeah, the Dan that he mentioned is our drummer, Dan, the, other, drummer, the, Dan the other Irish. And you met Dan back in New York, so you've known Dan a very long time. Right, so what we're doing is getting back to our roots. And I'm glad you brought up, like, how did I start? And some of these questions become routine but um in the sense of you know getting to know someone the first time 
But I'm an Irish New Yorker that met another Irish New Yorker, and we have a trio called Owl. With, with the Greek invasion. With the Greek, <laughs> full-on <laughs> Greek. So we have, like, uh, you know, a kind of neat hybrid of talent in this band that we've cultivated for quite some time. And uh, You can check it all out on Facebook or owltheband.net, but that's part of my story, even though I played with all these rock stars well, as well. Now, you knew Dan a long time ago, and then how were you guys, did you start writing the music when you... Did you just hit it off when you first met each other? Like, say, you know, we're, I mean, I know you're two Irish guys from New York, but you sit there and you go, we're going to, did you ever think when you met him at first, you would end up forming a band down the road? And because you, you write and you do, I mean, you guys have a lot of responsibility. We were so young, we weren't even thinking yet. So it was kind of like uh, 14, 15, 15, 16 is when we met. And there's a drum kit uh, set up downstairs in my parents' house with two, two amps, a Marshall stack and a bass, a bass cab and an amp. And uh, so he just came over because it was set up for my other band, and we jammed, and it was an instant kind of click. So that must be great, because, you know, it's just to get the chemistry. I mean, even like, now for you, when you jumped in, was it sort of different because these guys had had such a long relationship? Or, I mean, I mean, how did how did you come about well, into this formulation? No, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I had known Chris here in Los Angeles for a long time, many years. We'd go on hikes together every week, and, and um, but when he... He and Dan had gone their separate ways for many years, so when Dan came back into the picture is when I, we all came back into it at the same time. Um, so it was, yeah, it was interesting because <laughs> it was weird. As well, yes, the answer is yes, it was weird. But they, it wasn't like they had been playing together this whole time. So yeah, we had they, a lot of time. They off. were they were reforming their chemistry when I walked into it. So it was more like you're coming into a situation that's new and fresh for everybody, but then I rapidly realized, okay, yeah, there's there's definitely a vibe and a history here and the way these guys, you know, the way they spar in the studio. And and, and so I, I basically exerted my control over the whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, eventually at, at three records, you know, we, there's a lot more trust and stuff. And I had the band kind of going in, in L.A. And this lineup uh, grounded down and finally happened. You know, so three albums deep now, the band became kind of its own own thing. Regardless of Jason um, being new at the time, and Dan and I, he had a band called The Clay People in New York, and uh, I moved out to L.A. and started playing with all these other artists, and I wanted to do an album and restart this kind of concept I had that really started back with Dan, but we had many years off from each other, you know, as well. What was it like for you moving out to L.A. when, I mean, you, to get, because you... You're coming from New York, and mm -hmm. you're now. What year was this when you came to LA? Well, I, my bands. I had two different bands in New York that started falling apart. I was in a band with uh, Dan first, and then another five-year run. So it was like I guess in the mm -hmm. mid '90s I started flying out to LA and moved out here like '95, '94. How do you start getting gigs with bands? Because you've played with some really good people. I mean, as you know, there's so many musicians out here, and you're coming out to LA. You know the home of you know music and everything how do you start hitting the pavement did you have contacts to get in different bands and who was the first band you actually played with in la well because of my history in new york and i had this like deep uh kind of uh history there and playing all the clubs and having different bands and packing the house all the time over and over and getting like basically regional press and um also, when you got uh, the big bass player magazine right up around then too, right? Uh, back then it was Guitar Player magazine. It was Mike Varney, and there was also Guitar for the Practicing Musician. Um, bass player, I don't even think was out yet at that point. But uh, I was only 17, and I was getting like kind of really cool international press, which was like when I so when I came out, I would dare say I was a bit brazen even and <laughs> thinking that I could do everything I wanted to do. But it was also very humbling because you'd have the most famous might be the lousiest bass player in the world in line in front of you and you know he's led into the club and you're left outside because who am I I was just the new kid on the block so there was an attraction um to finding out who the new kid on the block was because I made sure I was here and seen and also playing with certain people you know so that happened through years of playing in New York already and already being a grown man but my New York stuff was more like I like I'd say regional Okay, so now when you come out here, though, who were some of the people you said you said playing with a certain people? Who were the certain people you started playing with when you first got out here? Uh, when I first got out, I was working with one of the gentlemen from Steve Vai's band, uh, Will Riley. I don't even know what happened to him now, actually. It's, it's been a while that he's come up. But also I started working uh, and teaching in Hollywood 
and I, I started taking lessons from Tommy Mars, from Frank Zappa, and uh, I wanted to learn about music theory and things. I mean, not bass. You know, I just took lessons from him, and I was very tapped into some of the Zappa. Uh, and funny enough, the Tool camp, because my next-door neighbors were both uh, Tool and Frank Zappa-oriented. My, my neighbor, Chris Pittman, which I was in a band called Lusk, um, we had a band with uh, the bass player from Tool, and I played upright bass in that band. And everything just sort of flourished, strangely enough. Everyone just kind of, like, magnetically popped in. And I kind of believe in those metaphysics where you don't have to run around with your business card. People can tell you're that kind of artist. Like, oh, who's that guy? I want to work with him. And I can do it, so I'm sure other people can do it with me if it's a fit. So you actually, because I think that too. I think you can always tell if someone's, you know, legit or not. I always crack yeah. up, you know, especially because I had a background in doing stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And I could always tell when you, as soon as a guy walked in the club or you knew the guy was just doing comedy to get laid or he actually was doing comedy to do comedy. It was actually good. And I think, I think if you're creative, you, you can tell that. There's a way to being creative and actually really doing it. And, and also, you know, you're not chomping at the bit for a gig. You know what I mean? It's not like this isn't my first barbecue or my first record for that matter. It's our third album. And, you know, we've gone through publicity people in the past that did nothing for us. And we've learned a lot of lessons, you know what I mean? And, um, but yet I still feel like I'm on the cutting edge with this kind of sound that we've created. And uh, it's a hard rock sound if you haven't heard it yet. You know, if it's, it's, a, it's an edgy sound, but it's very, um, it's, it's, it's very melodic, so it shouldn't be hard to digest for anyone, really. Now, Jason, what's your background in music? I mean, were you uh, the same as Chris? You started at a very young age, or how, did, how long have you been, did you start, and how did you know you wanted to be a musician? Um. I've been told that, yeah, basically before memories that I, like stuff that I even remember, I used to sit in front of a record player and just like not move for hours and listen to whatever they put in front of me when I was like two years old. So I guess it started pretty early, yeah. But I um, I started taking uh, classical piano lessons when I was six or seven, something like that. And then I continued that all the way through high school and then got my bachelor's degree in music at uh, UC Berkeley. Yeah, it really and, amazes me. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, it was, but I didn't actually pick up guitar until a week after my first Van Halen concert, and I was 16 years old, so that's when that happened. <laughs> you know what's amazing is a lot of musicians who have been around for a long time, you guys all go back to the theory. You want to learn the theory. You want to, you want to learn more than just getting up there and jamming, which is really, I mean, I've learned that with talking to a lot of people. I mean, it's something, is, is it important just because then you can create better, or is it because you sit there and just, you want to know what the hell's going on all the time? It's kind of like science and space, you know what I mean? If you don't stop going for the quest, you think we've, we've achieved every place already, you know, we, we, you think we've gone everywhere already, then your dream's gone. So you got to keep believing there's somewhere else to go. Like I'm playing upright bass and, and playing like hard rock songs and doing it with ferocity and sound effects and distortion and so on and being the lead singer. Um, you know, I'm not saying I'm the only guy doing it, but I'm one of the very few. So I still believe there's something left to be done. So just like space, if you don't go out there looking, you're not going to find anything else. So if you like, that's that's my concept. Like I stay a fan. So part of that's not just music theory versus no music theory. Part of that's just being a master of your craft. I mean, I'm an upright bassist playing with a bow and I can do a lot of guitar player solos with my bow. And be very intimidating so maybe people should learn their craft a little more you know what i mean i would add to that too that there was a whole movement in the you know in the 90s that lasted for at least a decade if not farther beyond where theory was sort of frowned upon yeah no i got and scoffed at for it for so a certain period it's you know? really so that, that's right when i came to hollywood too funny i'm glad you brought that up because it really dwarfed everything that i was getting into which was i thought it was all about your chops and your craft which ended up being about for me getting all my gigs but it was kind of like oh that guy knows what he's talking about that's so not cool like and i thought to myself like what do you mean like as a grown man the more tools in your toolbox you, it's just it's just just the way you use it it's not like how you think about theory i mean that's ridiculous if you're under undereducated that's your fault you know? Yeah, I, I would also think that, you know, if you're playing this and you said you've gone to the bass and the upright bass, I would think that you'd be voracious on what you want to learn. You would be sit there and be like, you know, I want to, I want to, as you said, tap my potential, you know, be the master of your craft because it isn't mm -hmm. why you 
do something. You don't you don't see a baseball player right. saying I I saw uh, I'm okay. I want to be a I want to be a backup infielder. No, you want to be a star. It's like anything. You want to be good at what you do. You want to be able to play well. So I think it's I mean it's I can see how people would sit there and think oh he's learning his craft because a lot of times also comes from intimidation. Well, I mean, I, I was a teacher for a long time, and I did that on the side of all these other bands and things at times. And I might start doing it again uh, because it's just kind of something I haven't done in a while. But um, if you have the blueprint as opposed to banging around every time without it, and you could have saved your time just knowing the blueprint and starting, you know, from the beginning. In other words, knowing maybe your scales to some degree and your chords, you can save a lot of time, you know. But that sounds very unrock and roll, but I would spin this in, into something very important is we should put the music back in the schools and not focus on American football so much because most people don't even know I'm playing an upright bass. And people will always say to Jason and I after the shows, like, do you guys have tracks? What is that instrument you're playing? And we're just a trio playing music. So what's cool about what we're doing is it's edgy without all the uh, bells and whistles. You know, so you can have a lot of fun with this, and we're just a rock band. We make I a mean, lot of noise for three Yeah, we guys. make a lot of noise for sounding so sophisticated right now, but I, I'm just bringing that back to the public eye more and more in a lot of my interviews where I feel like there should really be education. If you don't know the four strings in the string family, that's messed up. I don't care what where you're from. I'm all over the world, and they don't mess it up in Brazil. They don't mess it up in Europe. They don't mess it up in Australia. It seems like we're we're off balance in this country. So that's not even political. That's just straight up, you know. Well, I think I think that you're true. I, that's true. I think they don't schools don't put enough influence on the arts. And and now as programs are disappearing, it's the arts that go first. I mean, I know you know I am I have no musical talent, but my sister played the cello and the French horn, and my brother played the drums. And the bands we had in our high school were good bands. They had a good march band. They played in the Atlantic City Miss America thing, but they got to travel and they made an. In, they said, you know, learn music. It was it was a good thing. And now you're right. People don't even know. I mean, everything now it's like it's it's tracks, as you said. It's like, oh well, you know, if you guys are kicking ass in three people, they're probably thinking, they oh well, there's we a machine playing tracks, something. Where, where do know? they get that from? And that's the whole thing about being innovative is utilizing the trio in such a way, being innovative with your instrument and so on and so forth. You know, um, at the end of the day, uh, it's really fun to bring this to the people though, because we uh, at Owl, that is relate to the crowd every night differently and I never know what's going to happen I mean you know it's part of the fun we might improvise we might do some different stuff but people are singing the music back to us and it's really about a heart and soul thing without the song all your chops are nothing you know and that's what I love about Ace Frehley every night you know we're playing great songs you know and uh, it's it's great to kind of play those songs on stage with him and look at him because you're like there's the guy that wrote this song god this is a big part of me you know even the solos are a big part of the songs you know and um, you really don't have much without the song. So, I mean, I wouldn't really glorify anything without the song. You know? Now, with the songwriting for Al, do you guys split it, or how does that work? Uh, I'm a seed planter, and we work on it together. And um, more and more kind of uh, natural things happened over the years. The first record I kind of had written, and second record a little different, and this third record... Um, I don't know. We experimented it a lot at times because um, we wrote it all in the studio. So it was pretty cool in that regard. I came up with some vocal ideas like right before mix time too, which was cool. Um, well, all the lyrics are Chris's as well. I write the lyrics and all that stuff. I start the songs out, but you know, Jason and Dan really did an awesome job of coming up with just parts I never would have came up with. I didn't say, hey, Dan, try this all the time. It was kind of like he just did something, and Jason would do some strange kind of spacious thing or a melody. So that's a lot of fun, man, because you can do all the pre-production and go in and play it, which is amazing, and get that live thing. But we also, uh, we've done that before. So this time we went in and had no idea. I just knew it was going to be pretty cool. I had some real interesting seeds planted, and I was like, ooh, can't wait to see where this is going. And uh, so I think it's the best one we've done, and it's getting the most uh, steam as well because people are really digging it live and so on. Well, a lot, a lot of that process too for us is about quality control and pushing each other. You know, these guys will be like, "No, do a better solo." We'll tell Dan to hit harder. Dan will have. Yeah, we're not you know, easy on each other. Don't, but why don't else be are so we soft on the together, lyrics you know? or whatever. I mean, it's you know, like you know, <laughs> certain times, like we can't get, uh, we can't agree. So you know, but. Uh, 
look, I could I could just go ahead and write a bunch of stuff and call it the Chris Wise Band, but that that'd be stupid. I can I can do that later after we break up and can't do it anymore. You know, <laughs> you, 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 you might you might make more you might make more money though. Now it's funny. Earlier you had said how you guys after three albums you really have the trust for each other. Right. How 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 as a band do you know? Do you feel that trust building up over the years? Because it's got to be something that you really you're all laying your your it all on the on the line. And I think, I mean, in the beginning, I'm sure, is it sort of like a new relationship where you're excited? I mean, how does that work where now you know there's a good trust? And, and how long did it take to really click with that? We say we say less now. In the, we try and say less when we're working together. And we kind of just give each other a little more space. I think that was a big part of it. But if we weren't happy, then we're not afraid to say anything <laughs> up there. So that's kind of the dynamic of having the band. I mean, um but I would say we said a whole lot less because we know how each other works and we could play off of each other more. And if I was looking for something, I was probably a little more articulate about it, just having more experience with the guys. And uh, what I love is we chase down our theme. And then what I do is get the team assembled and we all agree, do we like this theme? And then we start working on it and brew it up like witchcraft. And uh, we have a song on here called Witch is Familiar, which is in uh, a very kind of, spacious spacey groove and it's in seven four i think i don't even know i don't even know (laughs) there goes our theory strange you know things but it's it's a really unique song we have an opera singer behind this sort of very screamy um angsty bridge which i'm doing but orchestration in the beginning yeah yeah. it's kind of different so i mean i I don't even really know how to explain this band except for it it just got stranger and stranger and i'm so proud of that because it's hard to be unique these days see that's great and also it's it's good that you don't really seem like you have the boundaries and the strangeness so if you're sitting there and doing something and and you have an idea it's like you probably just say screw it let's just go for it and you just probably just see if it works or not right pretty much pretty much you know we had a cover uh tune that we did on our last record before this one, uh, we did a cover of the King's Destroyer, which was uh, Dan's idea. And when we approached that song, we were like, okay, let's do this. This will be fun. And then we sat for a minute. There was a minute where we were like, okay, how are we going to change this? How are we going to make it our own? And we went. To, and then Dan was like, you know what? Everybody just shut up. Go in there and record it, and it'll be us. And we don't, you know. And he was Less right. We, yeah, yeah, we 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 sort of almost thought ourselves out of how to do it <laughs> it's a really quirky and it song just ended as a up... singer too i mean i was i read the lyrics and i'm like ah, i don't know so but, but i had fun with it so you know it was totally fun now your bass playing career you know you started you worked with mick jagger yeah i did i did a session with him which was really fun um, now what is that like i mean for a it musician... comes up all the time like he and i are on the phone all the time yeah <laughs> it's just funny but uh how is it how is mick doing to him from time to time and he was super nice and cool and I had a whole night with him drinking like really nice wine and the chef was there and uh, the producer Marty Fredrickson uh, worked with Owl and co-wrote the song Pusher and uh, Don't Know What You Got, songs on both the last records, not the previous but the uh, first two. So I had a kind of relationship going as I have over the years with a lot of producers like Bob Rock. Yeah, Bob Rock was when you first you met him in the very beginning of your career. Tal Bachman, you know, you might remember She's So High. It was a big hit. I did that album, and that was kind of one of my starts. That was right after Lusk with uh, Paul Demore from Tool and Chris Pittman, who's now in Guns N' Roses. I mean, yeah, Guns N' Roses, and he used to do sound for Tool. Um, super talented buddy of mine, Chris Pittman. So there's like a whole like story that led me from one thing to the other, but without being long-winded, you know, one did lead to the other, and amazingly so. Like, you know, uh, my Aussie experience was great. Mick Jagger was great. Um, like I said, hanging out with them was fantastic, and the wine and dinner was extra cool. And I thought I was going to be his bass player, actually, and, but he made up with uh, Daryl, who was doing the bass. So whatever happened, I right. don't know. I don't want to be speaking out of school, Mick. Sorry. But uh, basically, I, it was one of those things. I'm one of those guys in town that people can trust and have trusted many times for some really big stuff. And um, <clears throat> Bob Rock's one of those people, you know, and I've uh, done some records with him over the years. Um, with the cult, Chris Goss, I really love. I mean, it was great to work with him on uh, Choice of Weapon. Um, 
you know, one of the things that, that I really love is working with all the producers because you get to have this sort of honeymoon period with them and then say goodbye and you don't have to destroy the relationship, <laughs> you know, so you kind of have that. You don't go on the road with the producer oftentimes, right. you know, except for this band. <laughs> I took on the production of these first three albums with Owl and it was a big deal, but I think I learned a lot from everyone. Well, tactically, when you produce an album as a, you know, when record producer what is your what are you are you listening to everything and bringing it back and mixing everything or how does that work for me it was like every little grain of the whole thing you know because uh, i had a vision you know so now i've got a lot the floodgates have opened i've got a lot out of me so i wouldn't be surprised in the future if you heard more collaborative uh kind of things with owl especially you know maybe jason taking on more production and you know there's some things not even expressed yet in this band that we haven't got into, which is like more acoustic music, which there's one on this uh, track here called the live um, because of being an upright bass player. I'm always thinking acoustic, you know, I just saw Tony Bennett in, uh, in New York, the Albany palace theater. And he was just amazing. The band was just absolutely amazing. Bass player included um, piano, drums, uh, guitar, and upright bass probably one of the best bands I've seen in ages, okay? And one of the things they did was, besides being that kind of old band material, was they had dynamics in between where rock bands don't even believe exist, you know? And he also sang a cappella, which was amazing. Put the mic down. People did... The, the guys in the band took it from utilizing only the theater to then utilizing the mic to then utilizing the mic with dynamics. So there is a level of stuff there that I really believe as a musician we're losing right now because of all the big production. So just going to a theater and watching symphonic music and stuff like that and add the PA to it, I think that's where Owl's headed. I think we might take it down to a whisper and then to an explosion. And then some pyrotechnics, too, we're working on if we can. <laughs> Flaming gong, absolutely. <laughs> Jason's working that department, and we're, we're getting the licensing together. So. Now, Jason, when you moved out to L.A., after Berkeley, did you come down to L.A.? Uh, no, I spent another five years or so still in, in San Jose trying to make things work. And I actually started working at a, um, uh, a pretty awesome recording studio in San Francisco called Coast Recorders. And... Um, then the dot-com explosion happened, and I was living in San Francisco. I was working in this studio for a year, and I saw all the big recording studios starting to shut down, and I saw the big rehearsal studios shutting down. And I, I watched, I, I literally in the span of less than 12 months, watched the San Francisco music scene basically die in front of me, and I was, I got to get out of here. And so it was either L.A., New York, or maybe Nashville. Austin wasn't really, nobody really, that wasn't quite happening yet. It wasn't on the radar, so... I figured LA, I can get there in a U-Haul, <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. Now, how did you start off when you got down here? Did you? I mean, what were you looking for? You know, working in a studio, or were you were looking yeah. for, or following the music? I mean, how? What were you looking for? Yeah, I started here? in a studio. I started working at the record plant as a as an you know an intern for a few months before I got fired, <laughs> and then uh, bounced around a few other studios in town. And I was working at a, a great studio here in Burbank called Ocean, um, and the owner, I think his name is Freddie Puro. I remember right. I was there. I was only there for about a week, and he's been around forever. And he, he was amazing, actually. He was. Uh, he came up to me after a week, and he said, "All right." He sat me down and says, "All right, listen. If you want to be an engineer, I'll give you a job here. You'll work here every day for a year. I'll pay you a thousand bucks a month." <laughs> like, oh God. And he said, "And after the end of that year, you'll either be a great engineer, or you'll be definitely very far on your way." But he also knew that I was a musician. He said. You know, you should make a choice though. If you do you want to be an engineer, or do you want to be a musician? Because you sh you're not going to be able to do both. And I thought about it, and he was, he was, you know, he was very kind for saying that. He's like, go home, think about it. And I came back the next day and said, you know what? Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the music route. And he said, all right. And after that, uh, that was that it was I all downhill up, from I there. Into Jason, then. <laughs> well, you guys, you guys, I, mean, did you, I had a lot more yeah. time on my hands. <laughs> where, where we kept bumping into that? each other. He kept coming to see Owl. I had these early versions of the band, essentially, before I started talking to Dan Dinsmore again back in New York. And and uh, I think he might have done sound for us at one point. I was a fan of the band, yeah. yeah. I would go to like all the shows. and, and A uh, lot of my friends would come out and just like hang out. And we had like a nice Definitely little didn't scene. expect to be up there. <laughs> yeah. And then I called him. I said, look, I want you to come in and do, you know, the first Owl record. And Jason always jokes and goes, I didn't even know if I was in the band until I saw the print of the CD. 
and saw that I was in the band. It's a, yeah, that's it's, it's what, actually that's not what a joke. <laughs> so, so I didn't want to hang around with a bunch of knucklehead like session guys with their hands out all the time for money. So I wanted people around me that really cared and, and really got into it. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen how it works. I know what happens. So if you don't get a genuine interest, you don't have any longevity, you know, um, so it's it's less of a project than most bands out there that are maybe even in the spotlight right now. I mean, they're becoming projects, even though you've heard the names before. What do you mean a project? Well, you know, they're not really like an organic, living, breathing band. They're more just like, okay, we have this budget, we need to put something out, and so on and so forth. Um, I think the art should be the driving force, and I've always had something to get out of me. You know, I'm always I'm always surprised about these people in Hollywood here that just want to be famous. I'm like, why do you just why do you want to be famous? I mean, you're going to get tore up if you just become famous. You better have something, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I think especially you better have something in then, music, you know? especially, too. Yeah. I mean, like like acting, you know. you know what? You can be a famous soap opera star. Everyone knows but you're a soap opera star. You're probably gonna be a crappy actor. But music, <laughs> no, it's just I mean, it's true. Yeah, exactly. Right? But know? but I mean, and there are those people that do that. But as a musician, I would think, yeah, it's like you don't want to be, you know, the next whatever that people go. Oh yeah, you know what? Uh, yeah, they're really popular, but their song sucks. I mean, that, that must be the worst thing when you see like you know people put memes up of bands like this person took all these people to do this one song and such and such. You know, just wrote the song. It must be really you must want to be respected by your peers. Yeah, that's why I feel so fortunate to be in Ace Frehley's band now. And I, you know, I had a great long stint with the Cult for about a decade. And you know, I was with them once before and had all these different like kind of fun cover bands with Billy and stuff. And it was a long time working with those guys. But we were talking about the music and stuff. And one of the great things about music theory and being a teacher and all that stuff is is that I, every night I get to do a bass solo with Ace Frehley. And um, it's great. It's been winning over the crowd. You know, I haven't done it in a while. And uh, even an owl, I wasn't doing bass solos. There'd be like interactive moments with the guitar and bass or a little bit of something but this was flat out everyone walks off the stage and i'm just standing there and every night i just base it off the crowd you know and i just feel it and it's been working out great and you know to do a bass solo like that and create pieces of music and improvise and stuff like that's been one of the funnest things i've done in a long time and i get to sing lead vocals for example um I would, you know, and a lot of harmony. You know, I would add to this too, just for the record, Ace has been very supportive of Owl, which is yeah, which amazing. is amazing. <laughs> you know, I mean, like what's been going on is this whole new wave of creative energy for me, and a whole new sort of like, um, uh, you know, like I broke my rusty cage, so to speak. You know, I kind of started doing things that were always in me. It, w- it wasn't appropriate for the cult, for example. So uh, there's, it's like, there's really like, it is what it is. There, uh, there's a supportive kind of role to be played. But I am not entirely a supportive kind of guy. Um, I'm definitely there to create some of the feature tones in the room. I'm not there to just be supportive. I'm very good at it, and that's why I get tons of work. And I could play you the fattest, grooviest bass line, and I can play you the funkiest bass line, and, and that's why I do what I do, you know. Uh, well, there are, there are a lot of players in at Los Angeles that come here to be session guys and they they love their instrument and they're they're, they're some of the best players you've ever heard but they tend to not be uh creative people as much you know yeah, they, I don't know I mean I'd like to think there's everybody out there I'm a, I, I think artistically speaking though I always saw the bass as not fitting in so I mean you know I understand what it is about that music that gets eyebrows raised because of the fact I'm playing in front of big crowds all the time like one of the cool things was in the cult, I played Hellfest before in front of 50, whatever it was, thousand people in France, southern France. And this past year I played it and that was great and it always has been great. But I, this was different. I got to experience that same festival and do a four minute bass solo and go and sing Strange Ways and be the lead singer. And, you know, that was just part of the reason why I'm doing all this stuff with Ace right now is because I'm getting to do so much cool musical stuff every night and uh you know playing gene simmons is it's hard all the fire breathing and the blood no i'm joking <laughs> you know, i'm glad no it's just a rock band the, the you know just go up with their leather you, jackets yeah. or whatever you know but uh it, it, there's a lot of fun in what i'm doing right now so part of what that is is expressing myself every night with a different bass solo which has just been outrageous because i don't even know who does that anymore there's like a few guys that you hear about over and over again and that's it <laughs> You know, 
Who are some of your bases? I'm mean, some of the bases that you've loved throughout your life. Like, I mean, were you did you like Entwistle? Did you like did you like those old school guys? I mean, what 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 were people that sat there and turned your head and said, "Well, this person really has chops." Well, you got your Steve Harris from Maiden, and that was kind of like there is this sort of family there in my my head, which was uh, of course Geezer Butler, which is even pre Iron Maiden, and then there's uh, you know yes, there was Entwistle, there was John Paul Jones though. I really like the composing kind of bass players. And then from there, there was Billy Sheehan, Victor Wooten, Michael Manring uh, on the upright bass, Patatucci, Stanley Clark. Uh, right now, I'm kind of watching Francois Rabath, which is uh, an amazing French-style bow guy, and I'm German bow. I've been watching him for the last few years. Um, you know, there's so many. It's endless. You know, I'm, I'm a fan still, so I'm always watching. Big fan of comedy and music. That's kind of what I'm into. What uh, What's the difference between French bow and German bow? That's uh, the hold of the frog, which is the basic, you know, the end pin where you tighten the, the horse hair. Uh, it's got a larger frog, and you grab it from the inside of the frog, which is the part from the hair to the, to the wooden bow, separating it. And then you have a smaller frog, which is where you grab on the outside of the bow, which is what you see most of the uh, symphony doing, which is the violins, violas, and cellos holding the outside of the bow as to where sometimes you might see the double bassists, contrabassist holding the bow from the inside of the frog, which is the part separating okay. the hair and the wood. So it's kind of almost like a handle. So, um, yeah, my thing goes pretty deep. You know, yeah. I mean, well, how do you decide which which you're, if you're going to be French or German? Is it somehow you get first time you pick it up, or I mean, how do you decide which way you're going to play? It was the rock and roll kind of punk rock part of me that just wanted to grab the bow and rock. So you have, you have more, more power physical. with that grasp, right? No, actually, you know, you're screwed if you think that way because it's all about it's like it's like yoga. It's really like it's like having the force and having the balance because if you if you drag it too hard and muscle it too hard, you're going to go sharp. So you yeah, have to really, really hold it a certain way. But my mentality for grabbing it was kind of like, I don't know, typical male. Just why, like, you know, I wouldn't go to yoga class with my ex-girlfriend because I thought it looked stupid. And then I did yoga and I was in, I was shocked. I was losing my breath and couldn't do half the stuff. I, I, <laughs> and now I try and do yoga all the time. But, you know, it's typical male stuff, you know, that I just admit to, you know. I think that's why I like the German bows. Grab the handle and rock out, you know. So, so now that when you said the cult, you were living for ten years about. Yeah, I did. I did a record I really liked with them uh, when I first met them. Came out in two thousand one or two, which was Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, so I did a stint with them as well uh, before. So yeah, it was a long time. Now, how did, was it an audition process, or could you did a stint before? I mean, how did they sit there and you're joining a band that's been around? They've been together. I mean, what's that like? As, do you feel somewhat like an outsider sometimes when you come into a band like that? Or Well, yeah, uh, to some degree. But I would also say, um, you know, you'd have some of those moments where you might go, hmm, I wonder. But when I first came in, I was really young and, uh, you know, and especially a little naive to them and every little, little post-punk kind of detail that they were into and how they came up. So... Uh, I just did my thing, and they were looking for something fresh. So I was using a lot of overdrive and distortion, and uh, which led to Metallica's uh, audition, actually. But I didn't audition for the cult. I was just thrown in by Bob Rock. Now, the yeah. Metallica audition was, how'd that come about? Bob Rock. And so he he knew you and knew your work. So he suggested, Now, that must be something going into a band auditioning for Metallica, because they're very big. I mean, did you ever get intimidated at these auditions? Or I never did an audition except for Metallica. Right. I mean, from the, was, um, and was, then the only other audition I did was Tal Bachman. And, you know, actually all the auditions I ever did, I, I, I usually get, to be quite honest. Um, this was one of the rare experiences where I really, as a younger chap now, this was 2003, um, had to learn, you know, once again, it's not always so set in stone, no matter how good you do or whatever. Robert was much more experienced. He already had, like, suicidal tendencies and Ozzy Osbourne for a decade. Um, so I think he was a great choice, and he's one of the nicest, coolest cats out there and a monster, you know, great player. Um, but I was Bob Rock's only suggestion, and um, I thought that said a lot. So to be very honest with you, no. I mean, I know what I can do, and I've always walked in the room very confident. I mean, if you, you can like it or not like it, but I'm not going to get uncomfortable about what I can do. You know. Now, when you, when, you, when you were playing with the Colt, what was it like starting to play the bigger stadiums and stuff like that? I mean, it must have been just bigger venues. Cause, I mean, My first show with them was like, I think it was the Coors Amphitheater in San Diego. And uh, to be honest, I didn't even know all the music, but I learned it. Okay. 
and we didn't have time for the rehearsals and a couple of the songs I wasn't that familiar with because there's there's a big catalog and um, so we didn't even rehearse it and the crowd went off and loved the beginning intro of the song and I was like oh wow they really know this one so once in a while it's strange as a, as, as a professional um, there's a job to be done like you mentioned Mick Jagger I did my job had no reaction or experience at all about like wow I'm with Mick Jagger there was a little moment in the studio and then I said keep it together it was on the ride home and I was like holy cow I just played with Mick Jagger that's when it hits me it's never in the moment because there's always a job to be done I mean if you have to do your job you go do it you're not thinking about who you're doing it with all the time you know it's not like it just becomes like you jump in like an actor and uh, you know do your part that's it now, the Ace Freely, I know, because it's funny, we have talked going back and forth, we're trying to get you in the show, and it's like, you guys are on the road a lot, and it must be great, because you guys play some amazing places. I mean, it's like, you sit there and go, God, what a, what a gig. You're seeing everywhere, I'm sure you, you, it must be great. How did that come about? And, and you being a Kiss fan as you're younger, that must be something like, holy crap, it's Ace Freely. I mean, just anything, you know, knowing their music, you probably knew a lot of their music, is, uh-huh. so it's probably easier when you know his styles, because you've listened to him for all those years. I had a great introduction to Ace, which was a professional one, which is he was doing his uh, DVD behind the player. Um, And they needed a bass player for the day, so I was his bass player for the whole day, thrown in by uh, a producer that Johnny Tempesta of the cult, still with the cult, threw me in. You know, they had a discussion, and uh, Johnny said you should grab Chris. So... uh, we met and had a great day and did the DVD and hit it off big time. And that was like five or six years ago. So I got eased into knowing Ace in the sense of like, you know, yeah, of course I had that moment. This is Ace Frehley, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in the room, I was doing my job. I wanted to rock the tracks, you know. So we did the DVD and um, we knew we were going to play together, Ace and I. And uh, his fiance Rachel, too, you know, it's like we kind of had this vibe like, don't we know each other? And of course, I could feel like I know Ace Frehley. No, no kidding, right? No, no problem there trying to picture that. But they had that same feeling, so I knew it was genuine. And um, so this past couple of years, I did some of Ace's new record, and then he invited me on tour, and it, then he invited me to do the rest of the whole continued. And now we're, you know, recording his new cover record, and uh, I just went in deep with Ace, you know. It's my main main gig now. What's it like? I mean, I mean, you know, it's just listeners want to hear because we don't know. I mean, for you, you going on a tour, playing with Ace Freely, you know, you and being you've been on tour with the Cult. For you, it, it's as you said, it's your job. You go and you kick ass. But what I mean, what is it really like to feel like when you're on stage and even like during your bass solo when you have all these people hanging and they're hanging on it because a bass solo is great. Everyone and everyone loves a solo. There's drum, bass, guitar. What is it like? I mean, is it do you have a feeling of control, or is it just something that sometimes you would just sit there and go, "Holy crap, man! I'm I'm living life." Uh, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I appreciate what you're asking, but uh, I would say when I'm at my best and even enjoying it the most, it's still an interactive thing. Um, and even with some of the bass solos, I've been doing Halloween in the bass solo, uh, playing like a two hand tapping piano kind of version of it, and. Uh, that goes over really big, and I love vibing with the crowd. Again, that's always what it's about. I mean, if, if you got your rigid set list together, I understand because there's pyro blowing up over here, and you got this going on, lighting over here. But if you're just a rock band going up on stage, just let it out and mix up the set every night, you know. And 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 the reason why I say that is is because I'm here to connect with what we go play the Viper Room. What is there 200 people there, and then press, and then you can't even move, and blah blah blah. And it's like. I don't know. Do I want to be rigid? It already feels rigid. You know what I mean? So I just want it to be like unorthodox, just unorthodox, out of the box. You know, the upright bass fell on the ground and I'm kicking it and everything's feeding back and we run off this. Like, who knows? I don't know. Every night should be different. Now, do you feel when you're doing, like, as I said, the bass solo with Ace, do you feel a difference in the acceptance of the music in different countries? Because I know you guys play around the world. Is there something that there's some, some fans that are just more into it or more into that moment. I mean, because everyone has different tastes in music. I mean, how do you translate to different countries? Um, it's real easy with Ace. Um, they're freaking out just the fact that he's there. And I think the words got out about this really excellent band, I might add, Scotty Coogan, uh, Richie Scarlet, the Emperor. 
and myself with Ace is really a genuine article kind of band. Everybody sings. Um, you know, we, we can't do the Kiss set with all that pyro, and we're not going to wear makeup and all that, but we, we kick ass in other ways, I think, which is the genuine rock band kind of personality from everyone. Um, if Ace wants to start blowing the stage up, though, I'm all for it. <laughs> I'll learn where I shouldn't be. I'll be. I'll, I'll enjoy that too. But I, I don't think there's any uh, difficulty whatsoever. I think they're so excited to see Ace. Uh, there's some rumors now coming up this year that we're going to be this coming year rather uh, that we're going to be doing some really big shows in the summer through the states, and we might be leaving the country, going a little south of the equator, possibly, and hitting South America. So. Um, I'm pretty certain those fans are going to be waiting outside the hotel screaming. I'm not. I I, I don't expect much else, right. to be honest with you. Now, what are some of your favorite places to play, as you've played in this business, whether it be a small town and wherever, or a big town? I mean, where are some of the places that you sit there? If someone said, "This is on the calendar, you're going to be playing here," you'd be like, "This is awesome." Well, I mean, I have a lot of them, and there's 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 too many to be quite honest with you. I've enjoyed so many amazing places. Uh, but when you play New York City, I think as an American, as a as an Irish American that was you know born and raised, uh, that that to me is always the most special show for Owl, for the Cult, for Ace Frehley. Um, I've had so many other experiences there, just hanging out where I feel like I'm at home. New York, L.A., and you can't you can't help but bring up uh, Brazil and Argentina. I, I just don't know how you could. You know what I mean? I Even if I tried to resist and go, I hate it there, which I don't. I love it there. <laughs> um, you'd be hard-pressed to beat those fans. I've heard South American fans are just, they're amazing. They just, they are so into it. It's just, it must be an amazing, amazing time. I don't even know how they knew about me yet. I was in the call, in the studio. This is years ago, 2001. And now I'm doing the, the tour with them. And this is like, internet wasn't quite, raging like it is now no one had cell phones it wasn't quite right. there yet and the banners in all the stadiums had my name on it was like matt sorum was in the band myself billy and ian uh, mike dimkich <laughs> we were i was on the banner my name and they had my name spelled right instead of you know wrong w-y-s-e was on the banner i was like wow these kids are amazing rock fans and they waited outside our hotel and you know all the guys know that, that play down there. It's it's one of the coolest, most exciting places to play. Now, Jason, when you when you were asked to join Al, were you did you know of Chris's work? Were you a fan of his work? Or I mean, how did the whole step come to where you know you you bring someone on your band? And I know it's not like now, like you can put something on Craigslist or you know, or you can sit there and you know book stuff easy. It's like back then, it, it's not it wasn't hard. I used to do comedy. It used to be like when you try to book a show, you had to send a press kit and a picture and it'll cost you like six bucks to send <laughs> and half the time they didn't even look at it you know they put the tape over to vcr and just watched and recorded a movie over it because you know they're like you walk into a comedy yeah. club and they'd have stacks and stacks yeah. and you're like i know that guy. i know that guy you'd be like next time you see the guy in the road yeah you know that club in north carolina yeah they didn't even look at your crap so they said they looked at your tape they're full of shit because we saw it how did you guys i mean how did, did you were, as, did you know of his work and how did the the actual meeting well, we, come yeah, we, we, we had a mutual friend in L.A., and, and Chris and I, she she told me, it was like six right. months I had been here, um, Michelle was her name, and and she said, hey, there's this guy I want you to meet. I want you to come out with me tonight. I want you to meet him. I just, and she was, it was just That's one of right. those things where she's, she's kind of like Chris in the sense that, like, she gets an, a vibe and an energy about something and makes an introduction, and so she, I met Chris that night. He was playing with the cult then. And, uh, which was my first day. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was, you know, I'm new to LA and I, you know, like, Oh, okay. <laughs> that was, but Chris and I became friends and we became buddies and, um, and she was right. She, she was totally right. And, uh, so yeah, being asked to come play with, and like I was saying, like the, you know, that what he was saying about joining Al really, it, it wasn't a joke. I, I didn't really know. I just, he asked me to be a part of the new record. And I said, absolutely. And um, I think, actually, I think I had offered. I said, okay, hey, if you knew, if you need anybody, I'm around. I'd love to do it. And then he came back said, yeah, do it. And then we did the record. And you knew the, you knew the songs. And, and so, you know. and I just kind of made myself available, you know. And that's like, 
you know, sort of like to the question you're asking, Chris, earlier about how did you get started? How did you yeah, get going? There was no audition. It was just like I already knew Jason, and I, I saw his other band, and I saw that he really pulled together uh, some really cool stuff, and I knew that was kind of what I needed and, and a personality on guitar. So um, that was that was it. Was no, no audition. Like a lot of my stuff, like Metallica was an audition for me, and that was kind of a strange thing, but like, um, not at all. You know, if you do your homework, it's just pretty natural. And uh, for Jason, it was just right into the studio, like a lot of the things I've done. Like when I joined the cult, it was just like right into the studio. You know? well, and it was it was interesting in the time leading up to when Chris had sort of, I, I saw, you know, the old elements of what the pre-owl, I guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of, and I, I saw that he was going through this. And so I, I, I don't know, I just, I kind of had a feeling like, you know what, I should just be ready just in case... And so I actually went, I play left-handed. Um, so your, your options are limited when you go out and look for guitar. And uh, this, the kind of guitars and the sounds that I got were completely different from anything that would work for Al. And I actually went out and I bought a new guitar uh, before. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and so it was weird because I, I actually, you know, you get that feeling. And so I went and I bought that black uh, mid-70s Les Paul copy, which is the same guitar now that I've done all three records with. But I... When I got the call, I was ready for it, you know, and it was kind of one of those things where you sort of trust your gut, and you're like, ah, I got a feeling about this. I think I'm going to go and spend a little bit of money and, and be prepared just in case, and it and it worked out, and that thing, that guitar is my sound on all these records, and, and it was very organic, yeah, it was cool. Well, it must be really exciting, just like, you know, you're joining a band, and it, as you said, it seems like the imagination runs wild. It's like there's no... There's nothing you're not going to do. I mean, if someone says, hey, you know, let's do this kind of song, let's try it, you're going to do it. And that must be great for, you know, to any for any band just to sit there and be able to sit there and say, you know what, we can try this, and what's the worst? It doesn't sound right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, Jason uh, plays piano, too, and we were trying different things on the last record. So um, what were you going to say? Oh, it's just, you know, it, it was interesting coming into a situation I've always liked to be a part of situations that challenge me, you know, and uh, I, I always want to be surrounded by the best musicians you can find. And you, you're, you're never going to find a stronger, you know, one-two rhythm punch than Chris and Dan on bass and, and drums. So when we went into the studio and we, we we rehearsed a few days, but like that first record we cut, we'd only, we'd never played a show together. Yeah, we, we did a lot of hard work quickly. We we did a lot of it was boot camp for I think three or four days of rehearsal, and then we went right straight into the studio, and the chemistry had to be there. We didn't have a choice. And for me, I was like a lot of it was like, all right, just keep up. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. I was throwing together certain. Chemistry, and it was fantastic. It was great. I knew what I was doing, even though maybe they didn't. Now, yet. how how often do you guys play live? Uh, we play every year, and we'll, we'll do sometimes, some years, more shows than others, as you can imagine, in between uh, Ace Brealey and now uh, this summer run Owl just did. I'm waiting, kind of always gathering dates from Ace, and there's a little bit of a juggle, but... Um, well, this year's been great. We, we did some shows with Dave Lombardo. and Yeah, uh, Dave Lombardo's band Film we did a bunch of shows with, and we've had some really amazing press. I mean, like, you know, if there was an avenue for us, we're so odd, and yet we're kind of like almost mainstream, and we, no one knows what to do with us, but like every time we get exposed, we're, we sell out of our merch, you know, we, uh, we have like people waiting to meet us after the shows. It's always really exciting. You know? These are not b- bad problems. They're not bad <laughs> problems. We're just kind of a unique band, and yet we're not like hard to listen to or anything. So, what have you noticed as if if someone to say an owl, like three different types of owl fans? I mean, is there certain people that gravitate towards music that you've noticed? Is there, is there a certain demographic that you sit there and go, if these people listen to us, they're going to love us? Or is there, I mean, is certain people show up your shows that are the same type of person? Well, we've got to win over some crowds. We did a taste in Minnesota, July fourth, um, which wasn't necessarily our crowd. I don't know how many people even knew about us. You know, we've opened up for In This Moment. We opened up for Jet. We opened up for Helmet. Um, we opened up for Ten Years. At the end of the day, I think we can win over a lot of crowds because of the fact that that we have a lot of emotional impact uh, mixed with the musicality. You know, we're looking for emotional impact. That's what's behind it, really. And if we can do that with our music, that's just the colors and the supplementing. I have stories and little things in here that'll take you into a far out, crazy place. I mean, we got the 
with the world in the background of a pyramid here and there's some some fun we're playing at but also we're hitting on some real stuff you know and asking some real questions so if we get that across where you kind of feel a little emotionally shaken and stirred good that's our job and that's what good artists are supposed to do now how'd you come up with the name al is there is there a certain reason chris for it? wise that's are you the wise learning. owl yeah. <laughs> that, no, uh it followed me around for many years so it just became like a cool mystical name uh, we're a trio owls three letters there's a lot of fun with it so witchcraft nighttime you know nocturnal Da, 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 da. We can write in in this realm all day long. See, that's cool. And now, so and and the people really are probably digging the upright bass because it's it's different. And you, very and, much and you, so. And you yeah. jam it. It's like you know, most people think the upright bass. They think well, old school. But well, this must be great for you. Th- there's some things I still like to do. Uh, like like I was saying, the Sinatra sort of Tony Bennett upright bass is amazing. But um, I'm mixing a lot of tonal things in that uh, with chops and so on. So, I mean. Uh, when you see me play upright bass, it's different. I can't really compare it to anyone. It's probably a little more modern and a little more bombastic. I don't, I don't know anybody else out there who's doing what we're doing in a in the format we're doing it. There's some cool guys out there though, coming uh, coming up. But um, I'm I'm enjoying having sort of like a uh, you know hitting people with a unique realm for the most part. Now, what are you are you gigging when he's not when when you, Al's not be able to play because he's on the road? Do yeah. you do you start your own projects or what are you doing? We well, yeah, I work I work in town in Los Angeles here as a producer. I have a, I own a recording studio, and um, sometimes I get involved with those you know projects, or other times it's you know I'm recording. I actually just finished uh, I just finished mixing a record for Dizzy Reed from Guns N' Roses. That was you know one of the, and now we're producing some new stuff together. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, people ask me what's my day to day like, and it's like, all I can do is, well, I can tell you what I did today and I can tell you what I did yesterday. And it's like dynamically different. Like, just imagine that all the time. Jason's <laughs> routine's different all the time. Well, how, how, how glad are you that you decided not to do the engineer gig? Uh, you know what? Um, well, it's interesting though. The whole reason I fell into it was because I was, I always just wanted to record my own bands and then I started realizing i loved recording and i loved the gear and i and and i got pretty good at it you know um but at the i started it to do my own thing and anytime i can work with anybody else it's just that's like hey this is definitely beats digging a ditch (laughs) you know and now now you play lucky strike a lot on wednesdays uh you know i've been invited to play with a bunch of cool people there it's been really cool i mean uh in fact, someone asked me if, like, how come you haven't invited me? And I'm like, because it's not my night. Right. <laughs> it's just I show up once in a while. Um, yeah, it's been really fun. Um, <clears throat> Chuck Wright uh, and Matt Starr and and that whole gang there has been really cool. Uh, Owl played one night, which was fantastic, and it was great to just play some really heavy stuff in the middle of a cover set. It's kind of neat. Um, tomorrow I'm playing with a couple of the Iron Maiden girls, Courtney and... Uh, and, you know, I'm going to do a song called Phantom of the Opera for the Halloween show. It's great. It's great fun. And I think the more sense of community here in Hollywood, the better. The more real players getting together. Everything goes up without rehearsing. It just, bam, you just go up. So, you know, um, you can't be messing around. So stuff like that's great in Hollywood. Come on. When's when's the next Owl Live date? Do you have anything scheduled? Well, we're looking at December, and we're waiting to announce a few dates here. I'm also going out with Ace Freely in December. And... Um, Finishing up Ace's record here real soon, too. So I'm excited about that. Uh, some of the tracks just sound tremendous. And you won't believe his voice. I mean, he's, he's sounding better than ever. See, that's awesome. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming thank on. Thank you. And I'm Thanks glad so you brought Jason along. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris, Chris sent me a message. He called me, and I was on air. And then I, I sat there, well, okay. And then and it was great. Uh, now, now, give all your info. Give your social media stuff, because I'm sure you guys have a lot of stuff. I know the, the website is owltheband.net. Yeah. Very cool website. Check it out. They got merch. They got events. They got, you, can, you can follow everything on there. Owltheband.net. Just remember to catch owltheband.net. That's easy, right? That'll, that'll send you everywhere that'll you need to That'll send you everywhere. We're on Facebook. Uh, you know, you could reach me on social media like Chris Wise on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We're, you know, it's all just there. We're not hard to find. We're not hard <laughs> to find. Well, I want to thank you guys. And uh, so follow them and uh, go to owltheband.net. And when you're going to the .nets, go to coopertalk.net because someone took coopertalk.com and now they went $4,000 for it. And I said, it's a .com. I'm not a name. You want $4,000. That's bullshit. I wonder what Aldaband.com. You, know you, you know what you do? You just call them up. 
I'm offer offer him less. It'll be an ongoing thing. I'll finally take it. I'm even fine. <laughs> <laughs> talk dot net. I'm like, I don't care. I'll buy so, you a happy meal. Exactly. <laughs> go with dot us, whatever. So go that. Also, send me an email, cooper, coopertalk.net. I will respond. Also, Twitter, at coopertalk. I always tweet a lot, especially during those uh, debates. I love the... Uh, the political debates. I'm not even a political person. I just they they crack me up. Oh man, that's better than oh, most it's, daytime TV. Now. It's it, it's amazing. So do that. Also, um, the Google Play Store. Go to get the Cooper Talk app, and you can do that. And StopTheSalt.com. Get my checkbook, uh, my cookbook. When I had the health problem, I wrote all these great recipes. You can go buy the cookbook at StopTheSalt.com. It's also available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. But if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll sign it. And I make like twice the money. So you want to buy it there. You don't want to buy it at the other place. So yeah, so check out AlTheBand.net. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.